What Maryland courts have said in criminal cases is that it's applicable to the police following the logic of the Supreme Court. The Maryland court had a case involving using cell phone data to triangulate somebody and they said that needed a search warrant. And subsequent to my writing a memorandum in the demo case, the Supreme Court decided another case which the judge that decided this case, Demo versus Kurtzy, uh, Judge Zinnis of the Federal Court of Maryland, said that it was Carpenter versus United States, where the Supreme Court of the United States said that judges needed a search warrant to get your cell phone data. They couldn't just go to Verizon and issue a subpoena for all your, all your cell phone data, for who you, you know, your tracking of information, where you went on your cell phone, that they needed a warrant for that because your location data, which your cell phone re reveals, is a private matter, and getting that information without a warrant would be an invasion of privacy. Good afternoon, and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, we are broadcasting under the auspices of Dragon Digital Radio at Howard County Community College with our ever-able producer, Chris Avieto, at the helm. And as always, the opinions that are offered on this show are not intended to be those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, employees, or students. And if you do divine any legal wisdom from this show, please do not consider it individual legal advice for your purposes. If you have a legal problem, it's an imperative that you marshal the facts and meet with a lawyer and discuss your individual situation. With that caveat, we're welcoming back one of the all-time greats in the history of everyday law, award-winning guest, Ronald L. Schwartz. Welcome to the program, Ronald. Good to hear from you, Bob. I'll be modest about my awards. Maybe it's the Podcast Hall of Fame that we can ascribe to get, in, get into one day. I like to think the ghost of Charlton Heston will come back and present it to you. That, that would be really wonderful <laughs> with his cold, dead hands. Exactly. With that said, you have sort of an odd magnetic quality for odd cases in your career. I mean, I kind of think the same can be said of me, but you to an even greater extreme. And you've had two recent quite newsworthy cases, one of which we'll just touch on kind of peripherally because I think it warrants a longer show. And the other of which is a fascinating case that was originally brought in federal court in Maryland, and it involves the use of GPS tracking devices by people who are kind of trying to track their ex-spouse or the father or mother of their children. And I wondered if you'd like to take a few minutes and tell us about that case. Sure, Bob. In that case, while it's not reported in, in the official federal reports because of online, most cases are available online, particularly through Lexis, Nexus and Westlaw, almost all cases from the federal courts get reported in an online service. So this case is the case of Demo versus Kirksey. And uh, if you're, anyone was interested in this site, it would be 2018 Westlaw 599-4995. In that case, I got involved. The two parties, man and a woman, were involved in a very nasty custody fight in Montgomery County. And I was actually brought in by the counsel for Mr. Demo, the man, to help in the divorce case. And during the course of this divorce case, which was very hotly contested between people that had some means, the mother placed a GPS tracking device. She hired a private investigator to place a GPS tracking device on his car, which she had no ownership interest in. The parties were not married. 
and also in the diaper bag that went back and forth with the child when visitation changed. And this was a hotly contested case. There were all kinds of allegations leveled between the parties, uh, abuse, et cetera. And the mother, based on this tracking device, the way they work is that they send up a GPS signal and you can get an app on your phone where you can see basically on at 24-7 where the tracking device is located. So if the tracking device is on the car, you can always see where the car is. You can follow basically the person's whereabouts you know, anytime he leaves his house and gets in his car and goes somewhere. And so during the course of their visitation disputes, the husband had some sense that he was being followed. The, the wife seemed to know some things about where he was. There was a, there he had a hearing. And while the person was on the stand, it was over support that he was questioned by her attorney about where he was the night before. And wasn't he in this place? And, you know, how did she know where he was? It sort of creeped him out. And at some point during the course of their visitation exchanges, he discovered the tracking device in the diaper bag. It was like in a hidden pocket and he felt it. He felt around the bag. He felt the device. This caused a blow up in their custody fight. And ultimately he found out that the car was being tracked also. And so he hired me to bring a lawsuit against both the lawyer who was essentially involved in getting the information from the tracking device, the private investigator that placed the tracking device on the car and the mother that had hired the investigator to do it. So what, just uh, out of interest, what was the theoretical benefit in tracking his whereabouts? That he was going to go see, you know, another person in a relationship or that he was going across state lines or that he was doing, lying about what he was doing? Or what was the ostensible reason for placing these things in the first place? Well, that's a, a good question. I think she wanted to get some dirt on him. So like if he was going to you know, uh, a bar or something. If he was going to a bar, if he was going to a brothel, if he was going to some divey place, if he was going to somebody's house all the time and he had another relationship, I mean, whatever information she should glean from it. The fact of the matter is she was really using it for purposes that were just sort of nasty. She was communicating with her family and friends about where he went. There were text messages that we got in Discovery where essentially he was entitled to visitation one day and she decided she was going out of town on vacation with the child and wasn't going to give him the visitation. And she was like chortling with her dad and her friends that he was showing up at the visitation spot and she wasn't there and how mad he was going to get. It was really sort of nasty. And so in that case, in fact, when it came out that she was tracking it, it certainly appeared in the course of the custody case that the judge that decided custody gave him a very favorable ruling. And I think part of the thing that really got him angry, because this was an infant child and the mother was a pediatrician, she looked very good on paper. And the father was really sort of, he was, he had some money, but he was sort of a more of a, I would call him sort of a Trumpy kind of very sort of toxic masculinity kind of guy, a, the kind of guy that social workers wouldn't like. And they had recommended supervised visitation, I think wrongfully. But I would say that the judge in the custody case really was angry about the tracking. And, and he got a very favorable ruling. They got shared custody. And I think the tracking by the mother had something to do with it. But when we filed suit in federal court, and this is, I think, the most important part of it is that the parties, all three defendants, the mother, the, the lawyer, and, and the investigator, 
filed motions to dismiss based on Maryland law, which had previously held that you don't have any reasonable expectation of privacy in a public place. And that's generally the rule in most places. A couple of states, California has passed specific laws against using these tracking devices without consent, but that's not true in most states. And so the question was, did my client, Mr. Demo, did he have an expectation of privacy to be tracked when he went out in public? And that was what the defendants argued in the case. I mean, I can kind of understand if you're standing at the mall that, you know, maybe they could be watching you. But I guess there's, in my mind at least, differentiation between being at the mall and driving over to your friend's house or where you choose to go in your free time. Well, that's true. So theoretically, a investigator could stake out your house 24-7 and follow you wherever you go. Right. In other words, they, they, he could he could put a car down the street and he could watch when you leave. And you everyone's seen these on the detective shows where it's the, where cops are staking out a house and they follow the guy and he gets in the car and they went. And if you did that twenty four seven, presumably you could do that. It would be fantastically expensive to hire an investigator to track somebody twenty four seven, but it could be done. And I don't think that would violate a reasonable expectation of privacy. What happened in this case was. So the the previous Maryland precedent involved a person trespassing on a marina. It was a workers' comp case or a personal injury case, and a guy had a boat in Annapolis on the Severn River in a private marina, and the private investigator trespassed. He followed a car through the gate, stood on private property in the marina, and took pictures of the guy working on his boat. And he was then sued by the boat owner the subject of the surveillance and the court of special appeals in Maryland said that that was okay because the boat was on public waterways in the Severn River and anybody on another boat could have driven up and ridden up in a boat and taken pictures of him on the boat. So since he was in a public place, the fact that the investigator went on private property to take the pictures, essentially trespass, did not invade the privacy of the person on the boat. That would have been the previous case and it was from about 2000. What I argued in this case was tracking was something different. And there was a Supreme Court of the United States case called U.S. versus Jones, where the police put a tracking device on a person they thought was a drug dealer. And they used that tracking device over several months to follow his whereabouts. And as a result of that tracking, they were able to essentially uh, effectuate a drug arrest of this person. And he challenged the arrest, the, the basis of the arrest under the exclusionary rule. I want to roll back a little bit of your lawyering okay. and just ask you, so you talk about an exclusionary rule. So what you're really talking about is the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution and your freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, correct? That's correct. In a criminal case, if the police use un- unlawful means to effectuate an arrest, then the fruits of that unlawful means can be excluded in evidence that so for example if you're unlawfully searched or seized and they find drugs you can exclude those drugs from evidence essentially that would get you off the case that's a essentially a pretrial acquittal so in u.s versus jones and many of these fourth amendment cases based on law dating back to the 50s were based on what's a reasonable expectation of privacy So, for example, 
you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your home, but you may not have a reasonable expectation of privacy on the public street. So if you're uh, certainly if you have drugs in plain view and it's in public, the police can arrest you. You don't have an expectation of privacy there. And most of the Fourth Amendment cases involving the police involve the reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, in this case, a tracking case, we're not talking about an action by the government, by the police. We're talking about a private party. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't particularly apply in a private surveillance case because the person doing the tracking is not the government. Your Fourth Amendment rights are rights that you have against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government, typically the police, the FBI, but not in a private case. You, you, don't, you don't have a right of unreasonable search and seizure against a private case, but you do have a tort right for invasion of privacy. In other so a words, a personal injury, right? A personal injury claim if your privacy is invaded by a private person. So if a person goes and starts opening up your mailbox and reading your mail, you can sue them for that. If a person goes and sticks up a listening device in your house, you can sue them for that. If a person goes in and you've seen these cases where there's these videos where people basically get secret videos and release them to the public on, on the internet, people get sued for that. They have a, a, an expectation of privacy that- Hulk a Hogan. Pri Hulk Hogan. Yes. Hulk Hogan is taking down of Gawker. That's correct. So this is a private court, not a Fourth Amendment case, but the theories between an invasion of your privacy in a private tort and in a Fourth Amendment case against the government are saying to me seemed the same. And I argued in this case that since the government needed a search warrant in order to place a tracking device on someone's car, and that's what the government could have done in the Jones case. They could have gone to a judge and asked for a search warrant, and then the tracking would have been legal because they would have to go to a judge and get prior permission. Obviously, in criminal cases, if there's probable cause to believe a crime is being committed, if you have enough evidence, you can go to the judge and get a search warrant, and you can, you can get a search warrant for wiretapping. That's done in mafia cases. It's been done for years, but you need a warrant to do that. And so what the court said in U.S. versus Jones was that the government needed a search warrant to put the tracking device on Mr. Jones's car. They couldn't just do it. And so they said that Mr. Jones, at least the plurality of the Supreme Court, said that you needed a search warrant to do that. Four judges said it was invasion of privacy. Four judges said it was a trespass against his private property, and that would have not been allowed under the original intent of the framers of the Constitution. And one judge, Judge Sotomayor, sided with both sides. She said it was both an invasion of privacy and a trespass. So it was a unanimous decision, but based on different grounds. But there was a plurality decision that said that it was an invasion of privacy. And Maryland courts have similarly said that tracking using a GPS monitor to triangulate your location without a warrant would be an invasion of privacy. Now, let me just stop you. Let me hold you down for one second. That is, so you're saying Maryland courts are saying this is applicable to the police or to everybody in the state? Well, what Maryland courts have said in criminal cases is that it's applicable to the police following the logic of the Supreme Court. The Maryland court had a case involving using cell phone data to triangulate somebody, and they said that needed a search warrant. 
And subsequent to my writing a memorandum in the demo case, the Supreme Court decided another case, which the judge that decided this case, Demo versus Kirksey, uh, Judge Zinnis of the Federal Court of Maryland, said that it was Carpenter versus United States, where the Supreme Court of the United States said that judges needed a search warrant to get your cell phone data. They couldn't just go to Verizon and issue a subpoena for all your, all your cell phone data, for who you, you know, your tracking of information, where you went on your cell phone, that they needed a warrant for that because your location data, which your cell phone re- reveals, is a private matter. And getting that information without a warrant would be an invasion of privacy. So what Judge Dennis said was that the same kinds of theories that apply to the police ought to apply to private people in tracking cases. And therefore, if the police couldn't track you without a warrant, it wasn't kosher for a private person to track you that if they did that, they could, based on the facts of the case, be liable for a tortious invasion of privacy for money damages. That a 24-7 tracking over months was an invasion of your privacy and that that was not information that a person was entitled to get without, well, basically just not entitled to do that. Now, it might be different, for example, if it was a husband and wife and they both owned the car, because if a wife is suspecting her husband of cheating and they have a joint ownership in the car and she wants to place a tracking device on her own car, well, the husband might not have that same right of privacy. So that's- But how is that any less intrusive? I mean, the car ownership isn't really relevant to the level of intrusiveness. Well, it's not. And that case hasn't come up yet. And that would be an interesting case. Though I would say that it's the idea that if a wife wanted to put a tracking device on her own property, the husband might not have an expectation that getting in that car is something that she wouldn't have a right to know where it is because she has an ownership interest in the car. Realize the tracking is not on his person. If she put it on his person, hit it, you know, in a micro dot in, in the collar of his shirt, maybe that would be a different case if there was a James Bond kind of, you know, tiny device that she could put on his person. Maybe he would have that expectation. But I think with the regard to the car, it's essentially placing the device on the car. Most cars these days, a lot of them have GPS devices on them. You know, you can go to OnStar or if you're in a car accident, there's GPS equipment on most modern cars these days. And so, you know, that would be a different question, I think. But in this case, she didn't own the car. And I didn't think the case was as strong potentially with the diaper bag as it was with the car because she actually owned the diaper bag. Yeah, that uh, just seems like a distinction without any meaning. Well, and I don't think Judge Dennis did either, but those were issues that came up in this case. And, you know, those are interesting issues. You know, what is your possessory interest in the item that's being tracked have to do with whether that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? But those are the issues. And since that case, I've had another case that's come up recently that I'm involved in where it's been used in another custody case where a person wound up getting a protective order over the fact that her husband tracked her in the context of a custody case. And that was considered harassment or stalking. So it has other implications, I think. It could be a stalking. If you read the stalking statutes, it's basically an unreasonable, without a legal purpose, basically in a public, you're not allowed to stalk somebody in a public place if you're doing it for the purpose of causing unreasonable uh, distress. And so it may be that placing a tracking device runs afoul of the stalking statutes. In that case, in fact, the judge granted a protective order, and that was based on the discovery of the tracking device. So 
it's a very odd thing because in the span of our careers, we've seen the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and its protections eroded that, you know, up through Arkansas versus Sanders and some of those cases back in the early 80s, it seemed as though the public had more of an expectation that they would be protected against unreasonable searches and seizures. And what constituted an unreasonable search or seizure by the police was much broader category and that the evolution has been the other way. And yet this new sort of right in harmony with that line of cases has sprung up. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Justice Alito, who is by any account one of the conservatives on the court, is also has a lot of libertarian leanings, and he is very concerned about privacy. And so he wrote the opinion in Jones based on the reasonable expectation of privacy, that the government could not track you 24-7. He's actually been a great champion of privacy rights. And so... In that sense, while the conservative justices have been eroding a lot of criminal defendant rights generally with regard to the police, that one would say that the Warren Court, there was a much greater expansion of rights of defend criminal defendants prior to the recent trends in the Supreme Court. With regard to privacy rights, there's a libertarian aspect of that that sort of cuts across ideological lines. There are both liberals and conservatives that are concerned about the rights of privacy vis-a-vis the government. And I think that's the trend that that's the trend that's evident from Carpenter and Jones, which which Judge Zinnis cited. The original case involving reasonable expectation of privacy was US versus Katz. That was a 1967 case where the government, I believe, was surveilling somebody in a phone booth. And in Katz, I can't remember, but I think it was a pretty strong majority in Katz that said basically the theory of a reasonable expectation of privacy was the basis of Fourth Amendment law. And since Katz, it's really a seminal case on privacy vis-a-vis the police. And so one could argue that Jones and Carpenter are sort of the logical conclusion of that as we've gone into more technological means of being able to track people. That's really the big change is, you know, technology. What was possible even 20 years ago is completely different than what's allowable now with these GPS devices where you can find someone's location with just a very tiny device that can locate somebody anywhere in the world within a matter of feet. So uh, we didn't have satellites 20, 25 years ago that were in geosynchronous orbit that could track anybody anywhere. And um, What do you think if I wanted to follow somebody with a drone everywhere? Would that be permissible or, or would that be an invasion of their privacy? Well, that's, you see, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and so a drone exists generally public. It's not an invasion of your personal space. I would think that a drone probably would be different. It's just like there are many places in public places now where we have cameras mounted on street lamps in many cities, and certainly in the UK, there's uh, cameras almost that cover every inch of London. And that's true now in cities in the United States. When, whenever there's a crime, we go- And the University of Maryland. The University of Maryland has cameras everywhere. And everywhere you go, there's no private place really in the open spaces of the College Park campus of the University of Maryland. And I think that's true in many cities in the United States now. And so if something happens on the sidewalk, you don't have an expectation of privacy that the government can't look at that camera and try to see who you are. So I don't know that a drone would be so different. I think the drone's in a public place and it's not connected to you. 
you know, you could use a drone to follow you, but is that really any different than putting somebody staking out your house in a car? I, I think it's- So if the drone's in the diaper bag or in the car, it's a different matter. I think that's true. Right. So it has to do with your private space. I mean, if, I, I, you know, the court used an interesting phrase that I liked, intrusion upon seclusion. And I don't know whether that was something that you created or was derivative from these cases we've discussed, but I like the idea. Well, intrusion upon seclusion is actually the words of the tort. The tort of invasion of privacy has certain aspects to it. There are different ways that your uh, privacy can be invaded. And intrusion upon seclusion is one of the means. That is actually the tort is defined by Prosser back in the 60s. The, the now, truth people is- want to know what Prosser, Prosser is the preeminent author on torts, torts being the body of law involving personal injury, correct? That's correct. And the restatement of torts was essentially authored by Prosser back in the 60s. And he created really out of thin air, the tort of invasion of privacy when he wrote the restatement of torts. And that conception was essentially adopted by almost all the states in the United States, Prosser being the preeminent authority of tort law in the 20th century. And also so, an interesting area involving Griswold and some of those cases involving contraception and expectations of privacy. That, well, that's that's true. That where the Supreme Court got into the penumbra of private rights. Exactly and, what I was coming to. So Prosser sort of invented the tort of invasion of privacy and intrusion upon seclusion is one of the there are certain there are three or four aspects of invasion of privacy. I can't recite them off the top of my head without going and looking, but if you've only got three minutes, so you don't need to. So I I don't need to, but the interesting thing about this case was this tort was committed in two states because Mr. Demma lived in Pennsylvania. So the tracking device, and he came to Maryland. And so the, the tort was committed in both Pennsylvania and Maryland. And Judge Zinnis said the tort is the same in both states because both states adopted the Prosser definition of intrusion upon seclusion. The elements of the tort were identical in both states, and therefore the tort existed both in Pennsylvania and Maryland. So is there a different law between Maryland and and Pennsylvania on this, or is Judge Zinnis' decision somehow binding on the courts of the respective states, or how does that shake down? Well, Judge Zinnis' decision is not binding. Judge Zinnis is a federal judge, and in this case, she's deciding what she believes the law of Pennsylvania and Maryland would be. But the the state courts, the the highest authority of of those states, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania or the Court of Appeals of Maryland, would have the last word on what the parameters of the tort of intrusion upon seclusion would be in each of those states. And certainly Judge Zinnis could have asked the Maryland Court of Appeals if she thought this was a tort. She decided to opine that it was, but that is not a binding decision on the state court. It would have, I think, persuasive authority, but it would not be binding. A state court could decide something different and it would be up to the Maryland courts to decide whether Judge Zinnis was right or not. So you briefly discussed the exclusionary rule. And for our audience, it's quite simple. It's in a criminal case. If the government uses an unreasonable search or seizure to get information, then the lawyer for that person can ask the court to keep that evidence out. Do you think there's an analogous thing that is at work in civil cases? In other words, in this custody case, if they tried to utilize information obtained improperly by the tracker, could that have been excluded or, or how would that work? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. 
The answer is I don't think there is an exclusionary rule in the private civil context. Certainly there are exclusionary rules written in the statute. So for example, in a legal wiretap, like in Maryland, you can't take somebody's phone call without the consent of both parties. There's a statute that says that if someone were to do that, and that's an invasion of privacy, right. uh, but it's statutorily created. Maryland has an exclusionary rule that says you can't use that in a civil case. I don't know that such an exclusionary rule would exist in a tracking case, but certainly one would make, could make that argument to a judge, and maybe a judge would agree or not, and that would be an interesting question for the appellate courts. Final question for you. You were talking about getting monetary damages, and I gather that did take place ultimately, or are you allowed to talk about that? Well, I'm actually not allowed to talk about what the damages were in that case, because ultimately that case was resolved. But what I would say is that typically the damages that would be involved in a tracking case would essentially be, first of all, any, any physical or lost wages. If there's something happened and someone lost a job over a public intrusion, uh, on your public intrusion, that might be damages. But I think mainly it's emotional distress. I think that that's an element of damages in any court case, you know, pain, suffering, emotional distress. And I think many people would be emotionally distressed over the fact that somebody was tracking their whereabouts for weeks at a time without their consent. I regret to say that we've got to wind up, but I want to thank you, Ron, for coming on. And I would like to get with you sometime in the next month or two about your fascinating case involving the UMBC students and their odd turnabout in their case. Yes, Bob. Well, you were intimately involved in that case, so we'd, I'd be happy to talk to you about that again. Thanks so much, Ron. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.